Let us pray once again. Indeed, Lord, we sing those words and we do pray that these words will be truth in our life. That you take all of us. That you will bend our will to obey you. As our story that we are about to end teaches us from the book of Jonah. We pray now, Lord, that you will be with us as we come to look at a portion of your word tonight. Incline our hearts our ears, our will, to listen to you and to indeed surrender all to you, and to your judgment, but also to your mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The story has been told of a mother who sought from Napoleon the pardon for her son. The emperor said that it was the man's second offense. It was one too far, one bridge too far. And now justice demanded his death. And this woman went and pleaded to Napoleon and says, Napoleon, I do not ask for justice. I plead for mercy. But the emperor said to her, he does not deserve mercy. And the woman says, sir, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask. Well, then the emperor said, I will show mercy. And her son was spared. Friends, there's someone before our story, it's over. Before we end the book of Jonah, there's someone like Jonah, that not, like Napoleon, he needs some refreshing on the true meaning of mercy. And so we want to conclude this book of Jonah with this final lesson that we learn actually from Jonah's distemper in chapter 4. We looked at Jonah chapter 1, Jonah's disobedience. Jonah chapter 2, we looked at Jonah's deliverance out of the belly of the fish. We looked at last time, Jonah chapter 3, at Jonah particular his discourse. And now we look at this distemper, the way he gets uh, mad. This last chapter, we could say, is a postscriptum to the, to the story. The focus now is back on the prophet Jonah. Because Jonah, like the Ninevites, needs a change of mind. There's a final lesson that this book is intended for us to see. Jonah 2 needs to learn because of his repeated rebellions, his repeated outbursts, which are unfit for a prophet. He reminds us here of uh, Elijah, if you know in the Old Testament, he fled from God and asked to die after 40 days in, in time. And very much uh, Jonah is in the same boat here. It's probably day 41 and... In the timeline, and there's a lot of irony in this story, in this particular chapter. I would call this final chapter a summary of what we see as the Jewish sense of humor. Have you ever noticed how, whether it's Woody Allen or the Fiddler on the Roof, the Jewish humor often portraits misfortune, voices a sense of inferiority, inadequacy, and there are characters that are mocking. It's fascinated by the intricacy of the mind that at border between logic and absurdity, so it is in this final chapter of Jonah. There's a problem that the wicked city of Nineveh has been spared from destruction. And Jonah wanted these vicious Ninevites to experience the full measure of God's wrath. So he's, he's displeased, he has a distemper. Several ways in which Jonah's reaction actually, if you look at it at face value, it could be justifiable. I mean, think about it. The Ninevites deserved to die. They were the enemies of Israel. 
Think how awkward to prophesy their judgment only to see nothing happened. I mean, what does this say of God? This is Jonah's mind. That God threatens but then fails to act. And even, however, with all these objections of Jonah, from Jonah's standpoint, there's something missing in Jonah. That uh, he has proven repeatedly in the story that he has no regard for the lives of unbelievers. He, in fact, has this attitude that reflects the one of the Israelites at the time. They have this narrow nationalistic view and they were supposed to bless instead all the families of the earth. That was the call to Abraham to display the nature of God as a merciful God and the message of God to the nations. And here we see that God indeed can have mercy on foreigners, on unbelievers, even on the enemies of God if they repent on the spot. And that's what we saw last time. With virtually no additional revelation from God, the entire city of Nineveh had repented. However, God can also withdraw mercy from so-called Israelites who, like Jonah, stubbornly disobey, despise the graciousness of God toward them and the northern tribes of Israel. You see how so often you read the, the book of Kings, the book of uh, the, 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 the Kings or Samuels, like you see the judges, they continue in their stubborn unrepentance. While they have far more exposure to God's revelation. Far more exposure to the prophets and the prophecies of God. And they, they, they engage in even worse sins than the Nevites. So what we see here. That Jonah and all of us by the way. As believers are called to submit to the fact that God is compassionate toward his creation. Even those who we deem to be unforgivable enemies. That's ultimately the lesson he's, he, he and all of us met, must learn here. And uh, look, first of all, at how angry he gets about the fact that the city is spared. Verses 1 through 4, he complains that the city is spared the judgment. In verse 1 starts by saying, but, and you could have thought that chapter 3 could have been the end of it. The story was over, the Ninevites are repenting, and everyone lives happily thereafter. No, not Jonah. There's this final complication in the story. This final lesson, not just for Nineveh, but for the prophet. It's, uh, as I say, probably day 41. 40 days he had threatened. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. And nothing happens. Day 41 comes and there's no judgment. There's no... Jonah cannot contain himself. So he, he was displeased, displeased exceedingly. Literally, it displeased to Jonah with a great displeasure. There are things that make people irrationally angry in our day and age. Um, let's, let's say that your spouse is, is using something and doesn't put it back in its place. And a person or, or cuts in front of you as you drive somewhere. Or someone else skips the line in front of you. And usually behind that anger, there is a heart problem. There's a heart problem. And that is the case in Jonah. Why is he getting so mad? God twice comes to him asking him that question. He's not just displeased, but he's very unhappy about this. He's upset and indignant because he feels what God is doing by relenting from disaster toward the enemies of Israel. It's wrong from Jonah's standpoint. It's a great evil in his eyes. So he becomes very angry. Literally in Hebrew, it's 
it became very hot for Jonah. Anger broke out. You could say the prophet lost his temper. He became furious. He got lost into a rage. I mean, you can almost hear his voice as he mumbles alone and smashes his foot and leaves the town. He's so frustrated by the fact that judgment is not coming down on the enemies of Israel. And in verse 2, he turns toward the sky and he prays and complains to God. And he says, Oh Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Which, by the way, is a, a revealed time right there, that statement. Chapter 1, didn't he record this private conversation between Jonah and God? But now the reader is brought to, to the spotlight to realize, Oh, that's why he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord in the first place. The reason Jonah was running toward Spain, if you recall, was because he did not want Nineveh to be saved. He probably had replied to God's commandment to go to Nineveh and say, Oh, but Lord, what if they repent? Are you going to spare those wicked people then? And then he probably fled. He says, I knew it. I knew that you were a gracious and merciful God. And I didn't want this to happen. See, Jonah here surprisingly in verse 2 Rightly reviews the character of God. In fact, those words are repeated in Exodus 34. In verse 6 to 7, when God reveals himself to, to Moses, and he's hiding behind the rock. But this review of Jonah is actually very irreverent. He's driven by complaint. As if it is a problem that God is the way he is. Jonah is quarreling here with the way God deals with humans. It's all nice and well if you're like this, merciful with us, your people, and all our flaws. But to extend the mercy to strangers, foreigners who do not know you, do deserve to die, never. He says, I knew you, God, were slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. He knew that God was patient. Ironically, God is the, is the opposite of the impatient Jonah, who had Patient over Jonah over and over again, where most of us would have lost our patience. And he's also abundant in loving kindness. That means that God, his nature is to be loyal to his loving nature. But, the, but Jonah wanted to forestall the salvation of Nineveh. And all of this character of God was going against Jonah's wishes. He thought, if I go away, God would have to judge them. May never be that God spares these pagans, after all. That's why he fled in the first place. Particularly, Jonah is mad about the last item that God is. You are the one who relents from doing harm. I knew, God, that you relent from doing harm. I, I knew that you relent from sending disaster, which, yes, is exactly what happens here. As they repent, Nineveh repents. God at times allows his anger to cease. We already dealt with uh, this relenting last week. It's not that God changes his mind. I know some of translation want to render it that way, but it's, I think, incorrect. It's that God ceases the course of action that he previously said he was going to do. I'm going to destroy Nineveh. But because they're repenting, God now displays grace. But he already knew from eternity that we're going to do that. And so in light of the repentant response of the Ninevites... God doesn't change his mind, but simply displays grace according to their action, according to their repentance. That, that means that God is willing to reconsider inflicting disaster upon any nation. He is open to forgive if that nation, no matter how wicked, turn from his sins. 
But the opposite is also true. I was watching this cartoon with my daughter about uh, Jeremiah. And there's the potter. And just like the potter is able to take the pottery and just destroy it. If he doesn't like it, God is able, if the nation doesn't repent, to actually destroy it and build a whole new thing. See that? That God is free to do that. God is willing to, here in the case of Ninevite, reconsider the inflicting disaster. But in the case of the northern tribes of Israel, because of their stubborn unrepentance, will then sense the, the, the judgment of Assyria to destroy the northern tribes completely. But God canceled the sentence to destroy the bad people and that Jonah and Israel hates because they repented. They, they did what Israel fails to do over and over again. And they had just repented. The entire city of Nineveh. From the king to the, the cattle. Jonah instead thought that Nineveh could never be forgiven for what they did. And they deserved to just die and be destroyed. That was his thinking. And then verse 3 continues. Jonah, Therefore, Jonah is so upset that he doesn't know what's left for him. He fluctuates between anger and despair here. He, the, the reality, though, is that Jonah's reaction is capricious, okay? He, he, he's pathetic, I want to say, in this last chapter. He feels so stupid. This reaction is indeed sinful. And you see how sin in our lives hurts our conscience into more and more sin with our, with our, our unbridled use of the tongue sometimes. I, for example, you know, sometimes I have to apologize to my wife when I, when I answer in a rushed way or a harsh way. But sometimes what's even worse is if we lack reverence in our prayers to God. And we, we just outburst ourselves like Jonah is doing it. But here God is patient. But uh, God, uh, Jonah here is saying, take my life from me, God. I mean, this is what an unwise prayer would look like. You don't want to pray that prayer. Don't repeat this in your prayer, please. He's commanding God to take away his life. I mean, how absurd he had just desired the death of his enemies. And since he cannot get it, he now asks God to kill him. Which I want to say shows the selfishness behind this suicidal tendency of Jonah here. It's completely selfish. He says, it's better for me to die than to live. I'd rather be dead and go back home and tell my people I was the instrument through which God spared our enemies. That's his thinking right there. And God replies here with this uh, interesting verse twice in the chapter. Is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? Is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? Literally, is it well hot with you, Jonah? That's how you would translate that word in, in Hebrew. It's a proclamation that God makes upon Jonah's situation, his behavior that is out of line with reality. This is a rhetorical question, obviously. Jonah has no good reason to be angry. He has no right to be mad. It doesn't do him any good. It doesn't do us any good when we get angry. It's pointless. What does he ask to fuss about? And Jonah doesn't answer God in the first uh, question. The second one, he will. He knows he's, he has no valid reason to get mad. He simply remains silent. That's why Benjamin Franklin once said, Whatever is begun in anger... Ends in shame. That's uh, usually the case. That Jonah would rather be dead than to accept that God would show compassion on the pagan enemies of Israel. Because they repented. That's, that's uh, the issue here. Yet it's not always the case. 
However, there's a dimension of suicidal thoughts or madness, anger, anger depression that actually hides selfishness. When an individual is becoming so driven by self-centeredness, like, like, like Jonah is doing here, if no immediate solution to his uh, problem is found, you go in this vortex of self-contained anger at life as a whole. That's wrong. And God brings us, just like Jonah, out of such self-centeredness to help us see what we're missing in the picture of things, as we'll see. The problem Jonah here is broader, however. The believers and prophets of all people are supposed to reflect the character of God. I mean, how, how worse do you think it is when, when, like Jonah, we quarrel against God's character? We say, God, that's not fair. I mean, who are we to answer back to God? Who are we to quarrel with what He disposes in people's life? Think when you're jealous over another person, for example, receiving something from God, just because you have them in antipathy, you're like mad about it. Do we have a right to be angry? No. The answer is no. But Jonah's anger doesn't stop there. Look at even his anger about the plant. And that's the, the illustration that comes from verses 5 to 9. which begins, It's part of Jewish humor, I would say. He complains for the plant being destroyed. Whereas he has no pity for the city that has been spared. God could have lost his patience here, okay? He could have just destroyed Jonah once and for all after this last stubborn affront to his will. I mean, first, he failed to obey God. I mean, God saves him from the storm. He drowns and then he provides a belly of a fish only to see the, 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 the prophet finally reluctantly obeying with a three-word sermon, and now he's got even more complaint. If I relent, because they repent. Absurd. Thankfully, God is not like us. God is not changeable like us. God is not weak. God is not unreliable like many of us are. In harmony with His mercy, He shows, just like He showed mercy to the Ninevites, He's also merciful with stubborn Jonah. And in verse 5, Jonah in the meantime has left Nineveh. He drops the conversation God was trying to have with him in disappointment. And he sits on the east side of the city till he might see what would become of the city. He's so stubborn. He seeks a panoramic spot. We wonder why he went east. Because obviously Jerusalem is, is west from this location. So remember Jonah doesn't want to live. He definitely doesn't want to dare to go back to Israel after this. He wants God to destroy the city. And he has no further plan for his life. And he makes a tent and he sits under the tent till, till he might see what happened and, and befall. Whether he will get his wish and Nineveh will be destroyed. That's his desire. Still, he has this one last hope that perhaps God may still judge. So come on, Lord. Do what, what I think should happen. Destroy our enemies, please, O Lord. But in, in verse 6, God has a different plan here. In order to teach Jonah a lesson, he prepared or appointed a plant. Now, we already saw that word, you remember, in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, when the Lord appointed the great fish to swallow Jonah. Oh, it's all under God's sovereignty. And this uh, plant, it's a gourd or a castor oil plant. It's like a cucumber plant in the Middle East. Tall Provided shade from the sun and 
Remember, this is a very hot place. It's modern-day Iraq. And the plant immediately came up over Jonah. He made some shade and, and delivered Jonah from his misery. It's, uh, Jonah is, is in misery and grief, in discomfort, in affliction. It's a troublesome state for Jonah of distress and anxiety for, obviously, the heat of the sun in the, in the, in the fatigue that comes with that. Because Jonah's tent obviously was not enough to protect him from that heat. Mostly from, however, the misery of his disappointment. He is depressed. He's anger, angry over how things went. Ironically, however, these three will actually deliver him from such emotional distress by teaching him a lesson. And Jonah, in other words, needs a break. I mean, you have to admire the patience and kindness of God with this mad, sinful prophet over and over again that in harmony with the attributes listed by Jonah himself that God is merciful is low to get angry and is abundant in loyal love I mean we're so blind like Jonah he can't see beyond his nose and personal benefits he has no thankfulness for God provision Jonah had this initially become exceedingly glad of the plant and grateful he's happy it's the opposite emotion of what we see around this text. It's quite inconsistent, Jonah. His mood is so tied to outward circumstances. That's his problem. So unanchored in the purposes of God. So out of touch with God. And in verse 7, we have a double complication here. The dawn, the next day comes up, something else goes wrong. Not in the city, but in the nice tree that was providing shade for Jonah. God sends, still God is the subject, sends a worm now who damaged and chewed the stem of the plant so that it died. Not only that, but God prepared the same word of verse 6 and chapter 2 verse 1. God providentially prepares even the sun to beat on, on Jonah's head and the strong wind that blows on poor Jonah. I mean, you felt that strong hot wind in a dry day this past August, didn't you? That is, uh, remember, it's a modern-day Iraq and it's a desert region. So Jonah faints from the hot weather. And Jonah withers a bit himself, so to speak. The, I mean, the Jewish humor here seems to accentuate things going from bad to worse, which is exactly what we see here. He looks around the city. Jonah sees the city still standing. And now even this nice plant dies on me. Oh, he gets even more mad again. And he wishes to die again. The same words of verse 4. And God's voice from heaven comes again. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant, Jonah? In light of what he will say next, Jonah this time has the audacity to respond to God with even greater mortal anger. Is it right to me to give me angry even to death? He's arguing with God here. How ridiculous this story is getting. He wishes to die for a plant that died? He's not only irreverent, out of control, but worse, he has no mercy for all the human beings that could have died if he got his initial wish. Well, I don't agree with uh, G.K. Chesterton. He's obviously a Catholic. I think his thought on here should make us make sure that we in our camp avoid this characterization. He describes the Puritan like this. A person who pours righteous indignations into the wrong Thing. That is what Jonah is doing. God, however, still showed compassion on Jonah. 
through the plant. But then he removes that compassion. And that caused even great and greater anger on Jonah. The marvel of this story is not just compassion on Nineveh, but God's compassion on a disobedience and recalcitrant, supposedly servant of God, supposedly a prophet like Jonah. Over and over again, friends. So let's God's kindness toward you and I encourage us in our shortcoming. That even though your rigid thinking often is not in tune with the Spirit, just like the disciples were animated by a different spirit when in, in the New Testament, they wanted fire to come down on heaven upon the Samaritans. They asked Jesus, would you rain down fire on them? Look, they're mocking us. And Jesus says, oh, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. And that is this compassion that leads you to mourn and even weep, realizing those situations you, you and I risk to be out of step with reflecting God's character. And this is not just Jonah's problem. It can be our problem too. I mean, think about many, how many Christians struggle with this. How do we deal, for example, with anger management? Especially when things go wrong in our life. Especially when we show arrogance or unjustified anger and various outbursts. And this is something that believers are called to not only apologize for, but to turn away from. To take away that old self and clothe yourself with humility. Clothe yourself with Christ. More broadly, I notice that many, having even faithful churches, can emphasize again the grace of God, but our behavior doesn't show grace to others. And that is what we see here in Jonah. That you must reflect, you and I must reflect the, the forbearance of God, the patience of God toward the lost. And so may, may we pray that God creates this in our hearts. And so let us look with that at God's kindness now toward the lost. The last point there, verse 10 and 11, the ending of the entire book of Jonah. God joyfully spares sinners who repent. That is the, 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 the climax to this entire story. Verse 10, we come to the moral lesson of this entire story of the book. That God challenges Jonah to realize his spiritual short sight. He said to Jonah, you have had compassion or pity or concern or regard upon this plant. Should I not pity Nineveh? In other words, Jonah looked compassionately upon the plant. He wished that the plant could be spared from dying. Jonah wanted God to show mercy on that plant. Yeah, you, you, Jonah, are, are pathetic here. You're getting... It's so sad when just one plant dies on you. And here you have this city with all these countless souls. By the way, you didn't labor for this plant. You didn't make it grow. You didn't, it was not yours. You didn't earn it. It was a sheer gift from me, says the Lord. Where is Jonah's thankfulness for that? And it was a very temporary gift. It grew and died in one day. Of span of life. And think instead. Watch this. Verse 11. God gives this bottom line to the story. The moral of the story. This, this, this question to Jonah. Something much more important to God. Than one little plant. Should I not spare. Or have pity. And have compassion and concern. To Nineveh. Such a great city. You see. If compared to Jonah's pity over the plant. 
This is what God looks like to have pity and to, this is what God ought to have done. You see, God all the more should look with pity on human beings rather than plants. Recognizing that these people are in trouble, that they're blind, that they're headed to hell. And yes, God can cancel their judgment on the basis of their repentance. He spares them. I mean, remember the northern kingdom of Israel. Instead, they possessed the law. And God sent so many prophets to them. And they failed to repent of their sin over and over and over again. How should God treat them? You tell me, Jonah. Here instead they do. All of them turn away from their sin. Forsake their sin. And so, should I not have pity upon Nineveh? Think about it. I give you a plant for a shade for a night. It gets you sad when it withers. And you don't have a heart for this great city. The people that I created, that I watched grow, that I provided for all throughout these years. Just as Jonas felt sorry for a plant, how much more God can feel the urge to spare, here in this case, 120,000 souls. All these made in God's image. All creatures as opposed to just one temporary plant. And they don't know the left from the right, our text says, either They're blind and in utter spiritual darkness, but they're still made in in God's image. Or, if this refers to those who are below the age of accountability, this could refer to their children. I mean, this is an incredible big amount of people created and sustained by God who are in need of direction, who are in need of salvation. And our text even comments on livestock. God even cared about the animals He created. Remember, God made a covenant with Noah with all living things. Now, the comparison between the plant and 120,000 souls simply do not stand. It's like, I remember people in, in my past, there was this woman, she loved dogs so badly. And her servant in the house was fell down and she almost broke her arm and she couldn't care a bit. But then if the dog needed something, she was like, oh, I need to do something with the dog. You see, there's kind of a, a switch of priorities here, okay? What is more important, the human lives of all these people or your little plant, Jonah? And so, just as Jonah had changed from pleasure to anger for a small plant, God can relent from anger to pleasure if the entire city of people repents. William Cowper once says, Man may dismiss compassion from his heart, but God never will. That's the beauty of our, of our ending of the story, that God shows kindness upon these countless souls. Just as Jonah showed compassion on the plant, it is perfectly appropriate for God to show compassion for countless sinners as they repent of their sins and trust in God. That God is a compassionate God indeed. Even the smallest response by the most wicked people imaginable can still stir God to compassion. This is also why God's law made a provision for children not having to pay for the sins of their parents. Because God has compassion upon them. And such compassion is shown in no greater form than with God sending out of His own initiative His Son, His beloved Son. You think about Jesus when He came on earth. He watched the crowds and He had compassion on them because they were sheep without a shepherd. That's what was the first thought of Christ. And this is therefore an invitation for us 
tonight for all of us to realize that He is a compassionate God, that if a sinner indeed repents, indeed he turns away from his sin, God is promising here to show compassion to you. These unjust Ninevites were spared because of the just Jesus who gave his life, came for them a thousand years later so that he can spare you as well through his sacrifice, through his cross. But you got to turn away from your sins and you got to trust in him and in his provision at the cross. And there he can overlook the time of ignorance. And he commands to all men everywhere, all nations to repent now. And to believe in the compassion of God that has been shown to us through Christ. And through him we are welcomed in his kingdom. No matter who we are, no matter the baggages of our past, no matter the sin. If you turn to him in faith, he will extend compassion to, to you through his son. Dying even for the worst of sinners. However, like Jonah and Israel, the opposite is also true. That just like God can change his course of action when he says, I will bless a nation. And indeed he has blessed this nation a lot in the past 200 years. But if that nation, of which I said I will bless this nation, turn from righteousness into wickedness. And fails to repent when I call out. Then God... If there's a lack of response in repentance, God is all the more justified to withdraw His compassion and actually show us justice, what we actually deserve. That the supposedly belong, who belong to God's chosen people, the Israelites, the, like Jonah, they acted like they were entitled to the compassion of God. And that's a problem. In the meantime, they were denying to show mercy to others. They were denying to repent of their own sins. And they were resenting God's mercy for other sinners. That was the, the problem of Jonah. Yet God still shows compassion. In harmony with his character. So do we reflect God's loving compassion? That is the question that comes to us at the end of this text. Do we only demand the application of cold justice? We who are sinners by the way. And even at justice, do we apply justice when people wrong us while demand compassion when, when we wrong God? Do we have these double standards? Do we look at people no matter how sinful and depraved toward us? And still men, still women, still made in God's image. And for that, worthy of our respect, worthy of our prayers, worthy of our kindness, undeserved favor toward them. Except God may win them to himself. Maybe some of us, like Jonah, need to reorient even the way in which we relate to God and our understanding of God. And we should bring us to declare, if it wasn't for God's mercy, I would be in the same receiving end of justice. In light of that, it is indeed pathetic that you can be a saved person like Jonah. And still grumble, still complain, still quarrel with God, even ask to die if you don't get your wish in a specific situation. You begin to, to be mad over the kindness of God toward others. Instead of granting you your petty want. And being so ungrateful for even what He already provided for you. So minute toward the smaller matters like a plant. Which in that case may be your personal hurts. In your case, it might be your agenda being thwarted. 
I mean, your case might be your, your comfort, your sense of superiority, whatever that is. If you're myopic toward the weightier matters, here you have an entire city, you have the salvation of countless sinners who are still outside of Christ. And if no provision is found, they're going to die. And they need someone to go and tell them this truth. Does our heart burn for the salvation of the million of lost souls, even in this hill? People might have come to church years ago, our neighbors, our cities. The problem is that Jonah's heart and his large Israel heart didn't. That's how it looks like to be a Christian, and yet you are without mercy. Or better, you keep all the mercy to yourself, you receive love from God, but you don't love even your enemies. God commanded us to love our enemies. You hold the gospel, but you don't share it with the pagans around you because you think they're unworthy of that gospel. Friend, they're still made in the image of God. And they are as broken as you would be if you didn't have Christ. So from, from this story, we see that it was not so much the pagan Ninevites that needed to repent, but it was the devout Israelites that needed to repent, like Jonah and perhaps all of us. Jonah is out of touch with the heart of God. And we can too as believers indeed fall in the same trap if we're not careful. Here's God's heart in this story. God's love and mercy are without limit. They're not just bound to this particular people or particular nation. There's no, we know in the gospel that Paul tells us, no Jew or Greek in Christ that the same Lord can bestow riches on anyone. All that is required of them is that they turn from their sin and trust in Christ. To receive salvation. So why, why get him mad? Why get him mad about other sinners turning to God? Why remaining in jealousy of any sorts? You think about the good brother. The good brother. In the story of the prodigal son. That the prodigal son has squandered all the, the, the goods that the father had given. The inheritance. And he comes home and, and the father forgives him because he has a compassionate heart however the good brother is mad now he stays out of the out of, out of the building he says i cannot believe you let this son of yours who has squandered all your goods now you slay a, a, a calf and and you have a party around of the table because they are begrudging just like jonah the generosity of god towards sinners and still holding on to some form of self-righteousness so instead of complaining, friends, over our personal inconveniences, we should rejoice for the lost being found. We should have a burden for the Lord to save the lost. Let us pray.